please stand for the reading of God's word. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and on the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The word of the Lord. Last week, Amos left Israel with a heavy word. He communicated to Israel that God has set in motion a course of events that they will not be able to do anything about. And they can go ahead and mark their calendars because God is going to come to Israel in judgment. And all of Israel's wealth and all of the security that they have sought to store up for themselves will not be able to do anything about it. God is coming for them. And yet, even in the midst of this heavy word, Israel does not repent, they do not return to the Lord, and their minds are elsewhere. And Amos continues to come back over and over again to try to wake Israel up, and yet his sermons continue to fall on deaf ears. And the reason they fall on deaf ears is because everybody in Israel is thinking the exact same thing. He must be talking about somebody else. And they continue to not return to the Lord. And in the passage this morning, Amos returns once again to confront Israel about two things. The first is he confronts them about their worship in verses 4 and 5. And in verses 6 through 11, he confronts their mindset for how they navigate life. He confronts their worship and he confronts their mindset. And with both of these issues, Amos is highlighting the danger of what happens when you just simply make God an accessory to your life 
rather than make God the very goal, the very purpose, and the very point of your life. And so what happens to us when God no longer becomes the goal and we continue to think that everything is just fine? So as we jump in to verses 4 and 5, Amos immediately begins to address Israel's worship. And as I read these two verses again for us, listen for the tone with which we hear God speaking to Israel. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Do you hear that tone of sarcasm in God speaking to Israel? He's basically saying, yes, come to Bethel and to Gilgal, these places that I have not commanded you to, to worship, and come and boast in your devotion. So it's really what we're looking at in these verses is a sarcastic call to worship. Saying, yes, come and worship in all of your rebellion. So you have to ask the question, why is God speaking with such sarcasm? Why would he employ sarcasm to expose Israel's condition? Well, sarcasm and satire are very effective at exposing realities that so easily go unnoticed. It reveals reality with simplicity, and the effect of sarcasm is powerful by the way that it can capture reality with just a few simple words. And I think that's the very reason that we uh, have all grown to love the Babylon Bee, is it not? Because with the simple headline, it captures reality. And because I brought up the Babylon Bee, I could not help but include a few recent headlines. So, number one, churchgoer arrives five days early to claim favorite seat. Number two, Beautiful by Christina Aguilera, ranked top worship song of all time. <laughs> Number three, entire city engulfed in artificial fog after megachurch leaves door open. <laughs> Number four, pastor firing himself out of cannon suddenly realizes he's going to have to top this next week. <laughs> and lastly, local family commutes 700 miles to attend church that meets their exact specifications. Isn't it amazing how sarcasm can so efficiently capture reality with just a few simple words? And for all their genius, you know, the Babylon Bee is just simply stealing one right out of God's playbook here in Amos. Because in two simple verses, God captures the full reality of Israel's hypocrisy, their blindness, and the irony of their spiritual condition. And the effect is powerful, it's cutting. Because sarcasm exposes the silliness and the hypocrisy of behavior that we grow so accustomed to considering normal and okay. And this sarcasm exposes this ironic chasm between the faith that Israel professes to have and the faith that they actually practice. And it just serves to show their distance from the God that they think they are serving. This is Israel's situation. They are simply an ironic punchline to God. 
They're regular in their devotion, they're regular in their tithes and in their offerings, and they boast about it, but yet the more they do it, it just goes to show how blind they are, how hypocritical they are, and how, they, how far they really are from this God they think that they serve. And if we look closely at verses 4 and 5 in this sarcastic call to worship, God reveals Israel's hypocrisy. Verses 4 and 5, he reveals their hypocrisy in the reference to Bethel and Gilgal. Now, in previous weeks, Ryan has brought up that Bethel and Gilgal are simply counterfeits because they're not where God has said sacrifices should take place. God set and commanded Jerusalem as the place that sacrifices should be because that's where his glory and his presence dwells with the people, and that is where God promises to meet with those who come and worship. And so Israel decided that it's actually not important to really worship where God has commanded we can actually just kind of worship wherever we choose. The way we go about worship isn't really all that important, and it can be something of our own making. And so Israel decided that, you know, I don't really need to go to church on Sundays. I can just worship at home with a little bit of music and a sermon. And the irony of this situation is that Israel is basically saying in all of their boasting, look how devoted we are to the God that we don't even listen to. It's not ironic. And then he says in their sacrifices and their tithes in verse 4, the issue here and their irony is that God never required them to bring sacrifices every morning, not even really, not even close. And God did not require them to bring their tithes every three days. It was every three months. And so in their boastful rebellion and in their worship, it just continues to show this hypocrisy. And their hypocrisy is revealed in their tithes and offerings whenever we remember what God has already charged Israel with in recent passages, and how they deal and oppress the poor. And so, God is sarcastically saying, yes, come and offer all your tithes, come and offer all your money and all your wealth that you built on the broken backs of the poor. Come and offer to me all that which you have gained by taking advantage of those less fortunate than you. So the more, and the irony is that the more they bring to God, the more self-deluded it shows them to actually be. And then he addresses their free will offerings in verse 5. Free will offerings are intended to be this uh, private affair between God and an individual. A free will offering was meant to be uh, an expression of, of God's value to an individual, an offering of gratitude for his goodness to them. And it was meant to be private, and yet Israel liked to make it a very public affair to let everybody know how much they gave. And so, of course, you could expect that after they'd go and visit Bethel and Gilgal, little humble brag would show up on social media, letting everybody know how much they gave and how devoted they were. And yet in their worship, all that was really actually being communicated is that God must decrease so that I might increase. And in all of these things in verses 4 and 5, it shows the reality of their situation that Israel has turned worship into something of their own making. It's something that just exists for their own benefit. Their expression was just a, or their worship was an expression of their selfishness, not an expression of their devotion to God. And really, their worship showed that God in no way whatsoever was their goal or their desire. So how might this challenge us? this morning. Well, quite simply, the way that you worship on Sunday reveals where God shows up on your priority list. 
And if God is not the goal of our worship, if our relationship with him is not our priority, then we will inevitably make some worship something of our own making. And just like Israel, we turn it into something of our own making, essentially, in one of two, in two ways. The first way is that we simply go through the motions in our worship and we check off the box. If you think about Bethel and Gilgal, this is just simply Israel going through the motions. They didn't need to offer tithes and sacrifices in the way that God had established. They could just simply show up somewhere of their choosing and offer sacrifices and say, hey, we offered sacrifices to God. We can check off the box. And they just simply go through the motions. It's not important, you know, what God has said how. We can decide how. And we can go through it in a way that seems best to us. And if we're honest, do we not all struggle with going through the motions in our worship? All of us do. How easy is it for us just to come and check off the box? Sure, we come to church, we come to worship on Sundays, and yet we're distracted and we spend time jotting down a to-do list for the week on the worship guide. Or we come and yes, we sing the songs because we know the melody, but our minds are already in the next week into Thursday. Or we come and we confess sin each and every week, but yet each week our confession carries with it no real intention of actually turning away from those sins in the upcoming week. And we have to be mindful of it because we can all so easily fall into the trap of, falling, of going through the motions. And when we do, we just simply live in the hypocrisy of saying, yes, God is worthy of all honor, all glory, and all praise, and yet he's really only worth a Sunday or two a month. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the grave and paid the price for me to have eternal life, and yet he's really only worth about two and a half hours of my time before I become disinterested. Or for the person that shows up every week, you can still be just as absent because you're never actually here. Your heart never arrives. And the way that we worship on Sundays reveals where God show, shows up on our priority list. And the second way that we make worship into something that, is, that it's not is that we just turn it into something that makes us feel good. Worship becomes self-indulgent. And oftentimes I think this happens when we make, we make it self-indulgent, when we feel that the obedience that God has called us to becomes boring and we want to do something more because we don't get anything out of it. And so we begin to add a little something to spice it up. And if you look around at the way uh, that the church at large, the church culture around us talks about worship, it becomes silly. And you really see this uh, around Easter time. If you look around, around Easter, you'll essentially see two things offered to the world. A powerful worship experience or a positive, uplifting message. And we think that's what we offer to the world. And is there no irony there? If we, step back, if we stepped back and thought about it, we've been given a divine, world-encompassing mission to take eternal life to the world and to see the dead raised to life. And we sacrifice all of that because of a preoccupation with lasers, fog machines, and not ever, ever being disrupted. And the question is, it's not as though that, I'm not saying that God can't show up 
in worship like that that has all those bells and whistles. But what I am asking is that if you take all those bells and whistles away, would everybody else show up? And we can point the finger back at ourselves and ask the question that even though we may not worship, you know, with all the bells and whistles here at Rockwell Prez, are we any less devoted to our own entertainment? Does our relationship with God not get sacrificed on the altar of new TV shows and hobbies and endless amounts of screen time? We cannot underestimate the ways in which we value entertainment over actually experiencing God. Is all it takes for you to disengage your heart and mind from worship on a Sunday morning is just simply singing a song that you don't like that much. We value entertainment as much as anybody else. And in all of this, God is exposing to Israel and challenging us of what happens when God is not the desire and goal of our worship. Is that we simply turn it into something that it's not. And they turn worship into something that's negotiable. They turn worship into something that's arbitrary and something that's just self-indulgent and existed simply for them. And God will go on to talk about their mindset because he's basically saying that your mindset for navigating life is a product of how you worship. And so if I want to know how you spend Monday through Saturday in relationship with God, all I have to do is try and understand how you worship on a Sunday morning. And this is where Amos picks up in verses 6 through 11. It's in these verses where God recalls all these hardships that he's brought, all these plagues that he has brought upon Israel to wake them up. He brought famine. He brought drought. He brought blight, pestilence, warfare, calamity. Trying to wake Israel up to their spiritual condition, and yet in all of these events, they completely missed God, and you hear this constant refrain, yet you did not return to me. I bring all of this upon you, and you were focused on something else, and you did not return to me. Why? Because they were never looking for God in the first place. They weren't looking for God in their worship, And so, of course, they're not going to be looking for God in all the other circumstances of their life. And so they continued to miss him over and over and over again. And I think the challenge for us is quite simple again, is that if you're not looking for God on Sunday, then what makes you think you're going to find him on Monday or Thursday or Friday? The way that we worship God tells us about how we go through life. And if we're not looking for God in worship, and if we're not looking for God when he tells us exactly how to come and worship and to find him, then why would we think that we're going to find God in the hardships and circumstances of life that take wisdom and patient understanding and in those situations where God's presence is much more obscure and harder to find? And Israel, instead of searching for God, in their circumstances, they were searching for something else. And it tells us in verse 8, essentially, how they began to navigate through life whenever God brought these circumstances upon them. Instead of returning to the Lord and to see what it was that God was trying to communicate to them, their lives just became completely marked with an aimless, pointless wandering. It says that God caused rain to fall on one city and he, wouldn't, and he would withhold rain from another city. And so Israel would, would travel from city to city seeking to find drink and yet they remained unsatisfied. 
And so their life was just simply wandering around through life because their mindset was much more focused on finding a remedy to their problems rather than actually seeking a relationship with God. How easy is that for us to fall into? You know, we go through difficult circumstances in life and are we seeking a relationship with God or are we just trying to find a, a quick solution, a quick remedy? And the question this morning is that if you, maybe you feel that aimless wandering in your own life. The question to you would be, perhaps it's because you don't actually want a relationship with God. What happens to us when these things occur? The droughts and famines of life. What happens when your marriage goes through a hard season? Do you return to the Lord in repentance and wait upon Him? Or do you try to find the next book on marriage and try and get your spouse to read it with you? Whenever we go through a, a period of life where we're dissatisfied with our situation, we're dissatisfied with our job, with our kids, and we're so discontent, do we return to the Lord in repentance and wait upon Him? Or do we do what's so easy to do, which is we turn to our favorite preacher and teacher so that we don't have to actually search the scriptures for ourselves? Are we just simply seeking remedies or are we seeking a relationship with God? And the subtle line of hope in this passage is that do you not know that even in your hardships and in your difficult circumstances, God is speaking to you? It's God who gave Israel these situations so that they might be drawn in to him so that they might draw near to him. And you have to remember that God is not the God just simply of the good times. He's also the God of the bad times. He's the God of your joys, and he's the God of your pain. But in both, he's constantly inviting you into a deeper relationship. And so are you looking for the God that is looking for you? And how often do we say, God feels distant? And I think in this passage, God is saying, no, I am not distant. It's you who are distant. Return to me and find me. So God has addressed Israel's worship. He's addressed their mindset. And he's shown that they are not pursuing him because he ultimately is not their goal. So how could we pull all of this together? Let me summarize this entire passage with a question. God is asking Israel and he is asking us, is there any room for me in your life? Is there any room for me in your worship? Is there any room for me to be worshipped despite how you feel? Is there any room for me in your busy schedule? Is there any room in your life for a relationship with me to actually be better than any remedy you could possibly seek for your problems? Is there any room for me in your life? You know, when Amos lets this question hang in the air, he doesn't end this passage with soothing words or a positive, uplifting message. He just leaves all that tension for Israel to wrestle with. And in verse 12, he leaves Israel with another heavy word. He says, or God says, prepare to meet your God because I am coming for you and you can mark your busy calendar. I am coming soon. And the question Amos wants Israel to wrestle with is when he arrives, how will they meet him? How will they meet God who is on his way? Will Israel repent and begin to clear out all the things in their life that take up the space that have left no room for God? Or will they just continue to think that Amos must be talking about somebody else? 
And Jesus asks us the same question. When God came to earth, he started off by asking the question, is there any room for me in your life? As a baby, God came as a baby and he asked, is there any room for me in the end or is it full? And then in the book of Revelation, Christ, the one who ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, still leaves us the question, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is there any room for me in your life? Because I am coming soon, and you must prepare to meet your God. Does that appointment that Christ has promised is on all of our calendars hold more weight than everything else? What might it look like for you to make room for Christ this week? He is inviting you into a deeper relationship this morning in worship. He's inviting you into a deeper relationship tomorrow and Tuesday, and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And in your hardships and every circumstance, he is inviting you to meet him and to find him. And if you are discontent with your story, then perhaps you should seek out the storyteller. Will you begin to repent and make room for him and then wait for him to fill it? What might God want to say to you? What might God want to communicate to you in your circumstances? What might he reveal to you? You will only find that out whenever Christ alone becomes your only goal and your most precious desire. And this morning, might we allow Jesus to leave us the same way that Amos left Israel here? Prepare to meet your God, because surely he is coming soon. And when he arrives, will there be any room for him in your life? Or is he just talking about somebody else? Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we ask that you would reveal to us that which takes up space that you desire to fill. We recognize that we worship in ways that we seem, that we think are best. We worship in ways that offer to you what we think is acceptable rather than offering to you what you most desire. Would you help us to see that you are the God that is constantly inviting us into a deeper relationship with you. You are the God that longs to be all in all and fill all in all. Might we receive you this morning at your table. I ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.